Not only is it tough to get to the top of this business, but once you get there, the nastiness against you is so intense that I think it puts other women off. Like, why would you do it? I think I was the youngest woman appointed to cabinet in Canadian history when I was first appointed. And it started right away. These attacks can be extremely personal, extremely sexually violent. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's actually shocking. The culture of Canadian politics has been a culture of patriarchy, male dominance, and backroom boys for a very long time. Hi, I'm Kate Graham. Welcome to No Second Chances, a new Canada 2020 project about the experiences of women in Canada's most senior political roles. More than 300 people have served as a prime minister or premier in Canada. 12 have been women. What can we learn about Canadian politics and about ourselves as Canadians by examining their experiences? Well, that's what this project is all about. Over the past few months, the Canada 2020 team and I have traveled all across Canada to hear from the women who have reached the top. In this podcast series, you'll be hearing their stories in their own words. Thanks for tuning in to our first episode called The Problem, where we set the stage for the series to follow. Today you're going to hear from experts, media commentators, and political leaders about why this conversation is so important in Canada right now. So I have some bad news for you. Women and men are not equal in Canada today. If you don't believe me, look up just about any social or economic indicator and you'll see what I mean. There is a gap, and it gets even bigger when you consider other dimensions like ethnicity. The sad fact is that some people in this country are doing a heck of a lot better than others. Why is this? Well, there are lots of reasons, but one of them is that women and women's interests are underrepresented in Canadian politics. Women comprise half of Canada's population, yet hold only around 25% of our elected seats. And the old adage, the higher the fewer, shows that the numbers get worse when you look at senior roles. Only about 4% of Canada's first ministers, meaning prime minister or premier, have been women. The research is clear. We know that when both men and women are at the table, better decisions are made. And importantly, those decisions benefit more people. So we need to see more women in politics. It's that simple. So here's the problem. As Canadians, we believe a myth. We like to think women's representation in politics isn't really a problem anymore. We like to talk about how far we've come. I mean, women, well, some women, have been voting for more than 100 years now. Five years ago, half of Canada's premiers were women. And now we have a gender-balanced cabinet. So the problem's all fixed, right? Wrong. In this podcast series, we're going to demystify the notion that women and men have equal opportunities to serve as political leaders in this country. We're going to challenge the idea that women and men are treated equally when they do reach the top. We're going to hear from women about what it's actually like to lead in Canada. And most importantly, we're going to reflect on some big questions, like what their experiences reflect about us as Canadians. So let's get to it. You know, there are many barriers that date back a long time that include uh, legal limitations and women's status. That's political scientist Dr. Sylvia Beshevkin. She's one of the country's leading experts on this topic. She reminds us that Canada's history repeats itself day in and day out. 
you know, since the time of enfranchisement, there have obviously been uh, restrictions on opportunities for Aboriginal women to participate in the political process until the 1960s. Uh, we've seen limitations that affect women's economic um, participation in Canada, which have to do with the ability to uh, raise money and donate money to political campaigns. We've had discriminatory attitudes that have limited people's willingness to view women as capable political leaders. So I think there are many, many sources of, of barriers uh, that have affected women's participation. And in many respects, it's amazing that we've had 12 uh, first ministers. Here's how Elizabeth May, leader of the Green Party of Canada and currently the sole female leader of a federal political party, describes it. Well, the first hundred years of this country's existence, uh, every virtually every member of parliament was a man. So uh, it, the the culture of Canadian politics has been a culture of patriarchy, male dominance, and backroom boys for a very long time. Uh, women are now in larger numbers elected, but it, I found it very telling and a very powerful statement when we had the daughters of the vote, the gathering for the hundredth year of Canadian women having the right to vote, when Justin Trudeau told the assembled 338 young women, each taking a seat, what he said to them was that the 338 women gathered here today taking all these seats represents more women elected than in the whole history of Canada. And that was powerful. So we obviously have a long way to go. We certainly do. Many of the historical barriers faced by women in politics have been addressed over time. But what about this idea of what Ms. May calls a culture of patriarchy, or the discriminatory attitudes, as named by Dr. Bashevkin? Well, the system is not designed, and hasn't been designed, to allow more women to run for politics. The Globe and Mail's Bob Fife has been covering Canadian politics for decades. He literally wrote the book on Canada's sole female prime minister, Kim Campbell. Part of it's a societal thing. I mean, women have tended to be the ones that have raised the children at home. Uh, we're only beginning to see women in the last 30 to 40 years really enter the workforce in large numbers, and it's been a battle for them uh, to uh, rise up into the corporate structures, for example. But And it's, it's the same thing in Parliament. It's been a male-dominated system. So we've had examples of women... Um, having an important role to play in, in Parliament, but we don't have enough women in Parliament. Mm -hmm. And it's changed in the last election campaign where we have had m more women involved in the political process, and I expect we're going to see even more of that because young women like you are engaged in the political process and are not going to say no when some man taps her on the back and says, you know, really we want John to run for this seat. They're actually running for nominations, they're winning nominations, they're coming into Parliament, and they expect to be at the cabinet table and expect their voices to be heard. He's right. There has been progress. At least one woman has now served in almost every political role. Should we declare victory and celebrate what Fife called a male-dominated system as a relic of the past? We like to think that we're on the other side of sexism, that we're on the other side of racism, but it doesn't happen anymore. But it does. Yeah, not so fast. It was a lot better before the um, so-called populist movements have created a space where white supremacy is raising its ugly head, where misogyny is, is in some quarters acceptable again. So 
maybe one step forward, two steps back, or two steps forward, one step back. But we have not yet arrived in a place where uh, there is gender parity in any profession, uh, especially in politics. So what does this mean in terms of the contemporary experience for women in politics? Someone well-positioned to answer this is former leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Rana Ambrose. Any woman who goes into politics experiences a huge amount of sexism. I've had death threats. I've had you know, people say that I should be raped and I should be pissed on. Well, that takes us back a few more steps. I could get very graphic, which is not uh, nice for people to hear, but it's the, that's the reality. I mean, there's a lot of sexual violence um, underpinning a lot of the things that people say when they're extremely angry. And sadly, a lot of this happens front and center for the world to see, only heightening its impact. Uh, what I've seen women go through is, you know, anxiety, depression. I've seen, you know, women start to question their own capability, their confidence. And I think that it's just very unhealthy. Let's not forget, this kind of vitriol does happen to men, but the scale is undeniably weighted unfavorably to women. Now, we know there are layers to the sexism women experience in politics. Sometimes sexism is embedded in the formal institutions of government, overt barriers to participation or advancement. Sometimes it's about social pressures, the demands we place on women. And sometimes it's about the nature of politics itself. I'm worried about the overall tone of politics right now. I think it's going to be harder to get women into political positions because of all the grief they take. She's too nice. She's not nice enough. She's not tough enough. She's a bitch. Her voice is annoying. She doesn't seem like a leader. She should wear lipstick. And that's tame compared to the kind of grief veteran journalist Susan Delacorte is referring to. The level of political debate right now, how polarized it is, how uh, nasty it can be doesn't play to what I think are women's strengths in, in politics, which is building bridges and um, seeing both sides of a story. I think uh, um, when politics, the more it gets like sports, the more it gets, and when I say sports, I mean wrestling, you know, like the less comfortable I think women, really anybody is in it. It wears people out. It's it's very and exhausting. Uh, and you know, I, I I keep in touch with other women that are in politics. We talk about these things, and it's it's a, a whole other level when you're you're dealing with such personal attacks, attacks that are sexual in nature. Um, you know, they're they're very very personal in terms of the way you look, and you know, instead of people talking about your capacity to lead or your competency in certain areas. So I think those kinds of things do wear on people. It's everything from the personal to the political and, and, and it's family life. It's those, those pressures, uh, that you, that you have, and they're real. I mean, they're not, and, and, and when may, women make very serious decisions about how long they want to stay in politics because they have children, they have elderly parents. Um, so there's, there's that. And, and, and there's also uh, relationships. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I can't think of very many women who have been able to stay married through public life. It, it's very, in, it's very interesting. And it's, it's unfortunate 
in some ways, but there's a very, very high divorce rate for women that go into politics. Um, and so the reality is men that go into politics usually stay uh, in a relationship. They have that level of support. They have, let's, if it is a heterosexual relationship, they have uh, a wife at home. And this is, you know, this is sort of the majority of men that I'm talking about. They have a wife that stays home, quits her job. This is very, you know, this is the, the typical scenario. Um, and is able to care for the children, able to care for other family responsibilities. That's not the case for women that go into politics. Most often women that go into politics still have a spouse that works. And there's all kinds of childcare issues that are very difficult to manage. And women are to very torn about the issues that, that they have to deal with in terms of professional and family life. And they just do not have the same support system around them that men that go into politics do. I think that that plays very much into the decision to either not continue on or to leave politics altogether. In this podcast, we are going to focus on a very specific group of people, the 12 women who have served in Canada's most senior political role as a first minister. We're going to hear their stories as a way of exploring bigger questions about gender, equality, and power. There are some eerie similarities in these stories. Women leaders in Canada tend to serve for only half the length of time as men, and they tend to reach the top only when the chances of failure are highest. It's the famous glass cliff. I remember I first heard it from Sylvia Bashevkin at, um, at a discussion on, um, on women in politics, and it was about maybe 10 years ago. And she talked about the, the way in which women only become leaders of failed or failing states. I spoke with Dr. Bashevkin about the glass cliff. The glass cliff is a concept that comes out of um, management, you know, sort of the business management literature uh, from scholars in the UK. And it's kind of a response to the glass ceiling notion that suggests that there's a, you know, a set of barriers that, that prevent women from uh, getting to the top. And the uh, glass cliff is one which says, well, you know, the circumstances under which many women do get to the top are those of a, cl of a cliff. In other words, the, um, the organization, or in this case, the political party, is itself facing uh, some dire circumstances, and um, these are um, the ones that you know, tend to characterize uh, parties or other organizations that seek women as leaders. So the organization is about to go into a very risky uh, future, and somebody needs to take over, and given how difficult the circumstances are, perhaps... It's best to find somebody who doesn't look at all like the previous leadership, so, you know, let's find a woman. Elizabeth May also referred to it. Sometimes women face a glass ceiling, and sometimes they face a glass cliff. And it, it, it has become, there certainly has been a pattern of women taking on the role of leadership of a party when the men have decided, we're going to lose this one, we'll let a woman take the hit. We see so few women lead, and then rather quickly, we watch them fall. What's the impact of this in terms of how we perceive women as leaders? Well, I think it, it has a really unfortunate effect because when women start to do poorly or they're in charge of parties that are doing poorly, I think the visceral uh, outcry against them is far more intense than would be for a man. I, it is... I was driving, I remember about two years ago, I was driving down the 401, listening to a radio call-in show about Kathleen Wynne, and it was a good, 
year or so before she was defeated. And I could not believe the level of hatred for her, personal, visceral hatred. And what that does, I think, is it tells women, not only is it tough to get to the top of this business, but once you get there, the nastiness against you, magnified now by social media, is so intense that I think it puts other women off. Like, why would you do it? That's the... The, the problem is, for, for women at these top levels, I've seen anyway, is that uh, when people turn on them, they really turn on them. We started this episode by acknowledging that women and men are not equal in Canada today. We also acknowledge that women remain severely underrepresented in politics, particularly in our most senior roles. Sadly, those are the facts. But here's what I'd put forward to you. The problem here isn't actually about women in politics. The problem is with us. The way we choose our leaders, the way we evaluate them, the way we treat the people who step forward to lead, while all of those things are pretty powerful reflections on us as Canadians. It's about the views that we carry around as citizens of uh, women in public life, how we're often very quick to judge on the basis of, you know, appearance or voice or... Uh, family status, um, you know, hairstyle, you know, all kinds of um, uh, attributes, uh, you know, that we don't assess men by. I mean, there is a great, I mean, there's a great deal of impatience, great deal of willingness to jump to conclusions uh, that women in public life are are not competent, uh, that they're jeopardizing, you know, you know, the country's interests, that they are uh, somehow not, you know, up to um, up to standard. Um, and we're often ignoring the important influence and legacies that they may that they may leave. So, I think um, m- you know much of what needs to change is really in our hands as citizens and in the hands of um, of media commentators who may often set the stage uh, for the questioning of uh, of the competence of women in public life, and may set the stage for this um, uh, kind of uh, public impatience. Um, with women uh, who may make mistakes. Over the episodes ahead, we're going to hear the stories of Canada's female leaders told in their own words. We're going to hear about their rise and fall from power, and we're going to think long and hard about what their experiences tell us about Canadian politics and about ourselves. This journey begins in the next episode, called Raising Leaders. We're starting out by looking at the childhoods of the girls who would become Canadian First Ministers. This episode will come out on Monday, March the 25th. You can subscribe and learn more about this project at nosecondchances.ca. Coming up on No Second Chances. Well, people would say to me, you know, you should be in politics. And and, uh, I uh, would think there's no way I'm ever going to be in politics because I'm too shy. And he kept saying, but where's the man? And I said, I'm here now. So remember, it was a suicide mission at the time. We were way back in the polls. Our party was a disaster. There was no reason to think we would win the next election. We had no money. So nobody re- nobody good wanted to do it. It was a tough campaign because I felt like I was the problem. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020, written and hosted by me, Kate Graham. It's produced by Sarah Turnbull and I, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reynolds. 
Our music is composed and performed by Meredith Yuyanos. Mira Maud is the Communications and Operations Manager at Canada 2020, which is led by Executive Director Alex Patterson. This project would not be possible without the generous support of MasterCard. Hey there, it's Sarah from the 2020 Network, brought to you by Interact. If you like what you heard today and want to find out more about what Canada 2020 is up to, add yourself to our mailing list. That's where we share the details of our upcoming events and initiatives. And if you haven't yet already, subscribe to the 2020 Network. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We've got four awesome shows suited to everyone's unique tastes. On quality content, host Alex Patterson chats with people shaping Canadian culture. Writers, politicians, comedians, musicians, and more. 2020 Live is your opportunity to sit in remotely to Canada 2020 events. We bring you the highlights from everything that goes down in our studio space. On Explain Like I'm Vibe, we invite guests in to break down really complex yet topical issues to host Aaron Reynolds. There's no fluff, no buzz terms, just the basics. And finally, Endthread, our Friday morning current affairs panel. Shannon Proudfoot of McLean's, David Reevely of the Canadian Press, and myself will be there each week to break down the headlines that have shaped the Canadian Poli conversation. So go now and subscribe.